Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. This space is supposed to be about education. It's supposed to be a public service. It's supposed to pour into our communities. There's a great inequality in the UK's education system, forged by pricing out the poor with fees, dividing the haves and the have-nots. The pandemic has shone a spotlight on this fatal flaw in the same way that it's exposed many other weaknesses in our society. But this division isn't the only obstacle that students are facing at the moment. With everything moving online, the pandemic has also stripped them of the ability to connect face-to-face with their peers, to sit the exams they spent their whole lives preparing for, to truly take in and enjoy some of the best years of their lives. Larissa Kennedy is president of the National Union of Students, and she's my guest today. She became president-elect in March 2020, just as the pandemic hit, and has had the unique task of running campaigns and rallying the troops from afar. She sees the marketisation of education as its biggest flaw. In fact, university tuition fees came in the year that she was born, so it's an issue she hopes to address during her tenure. Chapter 1. The Root of the Problem Inequality within education comes in many forms. Just six weeks into her role as president, Larissa had to deal with the A-levels fiasco. Due to COVID-19, students were unable to sit exams, so the government awarded them grades based on a computer algorithm's assessment of their abilities. But within the algorithm were biases which punished people from disadvantaged backgrounds, leaving them with worse grades than they deserved. Fortunately, massive uproar, including concerns raised by Larissa, led to the results being scrapped. Joe Grady, who's the General Secretary of the UCU, which represents uh, kind of lecturers and other workers um, on campuses, really said it correctly when she looked at the A-levels fiasco and said, this is just an automation of what usually happens. And I think for some people that was jarring because they wanted to blame the robot. They wanted to blame a device that had made things go wrong, that had made exam grades go wrong. And I think Boris Johnson tried to refer to it as an alien algorithm or something like that. And, and in fact, what, has, what had happened and what everyone was up in arms about was this algorithm had recognised that year on year, our education system reproduces a league table, a ranking, where students from the most privileged backgrounds get the best grades and students from the poorest backgrounds get the worst grades. And disabled students, on average, do worse than their non-disabled counterparts. um, And students of colour, on average, do worse than their white counterparts. And the list goes on, right? And so this algorithm, if you look at it on paper, was pretty correct. Like it was reproducing the issues in our education system. And so that's why prior to those results coming out, when we were raising concerns with the Department for Education and others involved and saying this is going to be catastrophic for students. And they were saying we can't see anything wrong with it. And then, of course, that all of the grades came out and people were outraged. But it's because they were automating a systemic failure in our education system that happens year on year to batches and batches of students. Thousands of people essentially have their their journeys, their paths in education mapped out for them from the moment that they're born. And that is a problem that we need to deal with and reckon with. And we can't say, yeah, we're going to make the algorithm better this year. That's not tackling the problem. The problem is educational injustice. And unless we're ready to get to the root of that, 
we might as well just keep rubbish algorithms because we're just saying, okay, we're going to tweak it, but we're still going to make sure the students from the, the richest areas go to the best universities, quote unquote best. People can't see me doing my, my quote unquote because it's it's all rigged it's rigged the education system is rigged and kevin courtney who's the joint general secretary at the national education union was speaking throughout this fiasco about the fact that our education system and our grading system essentially means that a certain percentage of students fail every year so we just decide pretty arbitrarily that that cohort of students has failed this year and it's about the same percentage every single year despite the fact that the, the exams change and the styles of teaching change and all of that changes but the number of students who we deem to have failed doesn't change and that's because we are deciding the number of people that have to fail according to this system like that is a problem is that not a problem i see that as a problem the aspirations and the objectives that you had when you first started your term did they completely change because of because of what's happened it's really interesting i think at the core much of it is the same because from when i was running i ran on a platform of recognizing the fundamental flaws in our education system and i feel like that's what i'm, I'm continuing to speak about it's only that the moment that we're in means that those flaws have manifested and been exposed and exacerbated in a really raw way so it almost opens the door to have those conversations in a more tangible way than i might have been able to if we hadn't had this situation so Yes and no. Like, there's definitely certain things that I would have wanted to do in person and rallies and things, you know, student energy coming out uh, on the ground in the streets and so on. But, you know, lots of, lots of things that I set out to do have been able to replicate in a digital space. So we have, we have our rallies online and we're still really interconnected with the global student movement and, and still keeping up those connections, even though obviously we're not able to uh, get to each other physically and yeah, there's, there's a lot of energy in, in making sure our campaigns aren't just for this moment, but also mapping out a student, uh, the journey for the student movement. How do we take people from point A of asking, you know, why am I paying 9K for online lectures to actually recognising that they shouldn't be paying for, for university at all? And what is the role of political education in that space? And, and how does NUS support that journey? So... Yes, things are different than I envisaged them, I guess, when we, when we wrote the manifesto and so on. But in so many ways, the core of it is the same and the mission is the same. The marketization that you talked about. So school fees um, came in the year that you were born, which means that that generation of people have now grown up with that as the norm, as you said, that school fees have only ever been a constant. Do you think that the marketization has led to a perhaps a greater focus on rankings and league tables at the cost of things like pastoral care or security or safety and we're now starting to see the impact of that because COVID has shone a light on that. Yeah I think you're absolutely right in that there is a massive focus on as you say rankings league tables and that kind of comes in, in the packaging of these excellence frameworks which if you ask any student about their experience and their university experience are pretty arbitrary um, and they don't really map onto what students are actually looking for and getting from uh, their university experience which is of course far wider 
than the course itself. Like, as you were saying, you were reflecting on your time at uni and talking about your experiences, but that's what people remember. It's the the conversations outside of classrooms that you might have with your lecturer just because you you see them um, on your way to the library. It's, It's the things that you talk about in your clubs and societies and those conversations you have. And in fact, you're doing this completely interconnected work to someone on a, a different course to you and you realize it because you happen to have a chat over a coffee or over a beer or whatever it is and it's all of those things that mesh together to make the university experience of what it is and of course those very um data focused excellent frameworks that they call them don't they don't get the essence of what students actually go for in most cases and so it, it's not only been a focus and a reorientation towards that kind of data, but also this obsession with funneling money into the shiny things that pull in more students, right? So you'll see universities spending heaps and heaps of money on these massive buildings with often very little utility uh, and then underfunding mental health services. And so there's this playoff between what where universities spend the money that they're raking in um, and how that relates to more income in the future. It's, it's, and it's made, it's made a lot of us very cynical because that's supposed to, this space is supposed to be about education. It's supposed to be a public service. It's supposed to pour into our communities and it's acting as a business. And that is just harming the actual integrity of our education system. Before we move on to chapter two, if this podcast has inspired you to write more, or maybe even to write for the first time, then you may be interested in our sister project, The Writing Salon. Its membership is 200 people strong and features all levels of experience from people who've never written before to people writing for stage and screen. We publish anthologies of member-produced work and just like Behind the Spine, find learning opportunities in unlikely places. The salon has been running for several years. Right now it's a virtual event, but we hope we can reunite in person before too long. It's an active community and if you're looking for support, it may be just the thing you need. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at The Writing Salon. There's a private Facebook group. Just search for The Writing Salon group. If social media isn't your thing, no problem. We'll put a link to the email newsletter sign-up sheet in the show notes. The Writing Salon is by writers, for writers, because writing is hard. But now, on with this week's episode. Chapter 2. An unopened chapter. Most of us know that university is not simply about a formal education. The experience is much bigger and far more profound than that. Students aren't just learning from teachers in a lecture hall. They're also learning, for the first time, how to survive on their own, away from home. But there's now a massive cohort of students who are missing out on that experience. Yes, they're receiving their education online, but we've all become acutely aware through the course of this pandemic that communicating digitally just doesn't compare to the real deal. This isn't what they signed up for. So how are they coping? I think it's hit a lot of students quite hard, particularly those students for whom home isn't safe or isn't a happy place. And, you know, they've been years building up to this moment where they're going to carve out on their own and look forward to this next step. And, of course, that step hasn't come. But I also think one of the things that struck me over the last few months is, is students' tenacity and building community in a moment that's been really difficult. It, you know, in, in communities, a lot of the time, 
it was students who were setting up the mutual aid groups that popped up around the country um, to support people in getting to appointments and things and to get food at the very beginning of the pandemic when everyone was just kind of figuring that out and it was so difficult. And then, you know, students in the, in the moment where students were struggling to get access to food and things with the student lockdowns, folks were um, finding ways to get other students access to food. And it was just amazing to watch many of whom were young people, of course, not all students are young, but many of whom were young people fighting to build community, to build connection, to build a sense of togetherness in a moment that felt so separate. And of course, um, that doesn't substitute what for, for lots of people means they're now at home, they're not where they thought they were going to be. Um, and this is a very experience, different experience to that of many of their peers, especially first years who haven't had prior experience. But, I also think it's a pretty unique experience in and of itself um, and you know I hope that students are still getting things out of this year even though it's not what we might have thought it would look like. Do you think there's a chance that it might lead to a more active student body given the amount of mutual aid work that's been going on that coming together of a generation of people because if so that would be in you know presumably the NUS would be hugely in favour of that. Yeah, I mean, of course, we never would have asked for such a difficult moment, but it is remarkable how much organising has taken place. And this this set of rent strikes happening right now across the country, there are over 55 universities where there are student rent strikes, and these are all grassroots led. And this is the biggest wave of student activism in the past decade. So of course it's something we're, we're, we're welcoming how much energy there is and um, how much people recognise that they do have the power to, to deliver change. I think, you know, post 2010 and Millbank for those who are familiar with it and students storming Millbank in London and so on and uh, all of those protests, I think because there wasn't a win after that, it did have a legacy, but it, it was kind of a tainted one and now seeing the resurgence of, of student activism and energy towards recognizing students collective power it's, it's it's amazing it's just amazing to watch and it's coming so organically and there are people who only started university in october and within weeks they were bringing people together to organize and it's it's literally it's inspiring me and that's what gets me fired up every day to do this job is seeing students day after day week after week month after month when they're being ignored by their university when they're being invisibilized in the media when everything that they're going through feels pretty bleak to be honest they're still so passionate about knowing that they can collectively not only transform education but also transform the world and that's just incredibly powerful. The statistics Larissa are staggering about the age of the population in general. Um, I, I read something the other day that was something along the lines of by 2024 25% of the global population and 75% of the working population will be under 25. That, I think, gives you a sense of how people of my generation need to view the future, because the future is quite clearly not for my generation. It's for a, for a, for a younger generation. Um, that sounds like that could be a huge systemic change coming down the line. That must make you very excited and hopeful for the future. Yeah, definitely hopeful because, you know, as young people, we have grown up in the era of the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing that 
grassroots campaigning and, and, and the, the tenacity of, of organizers, not only across the US, but across the world who fought for justice for black lives. We've seen the women's marches year after year fighting for justice for women. We've seen the climate strikes, of course, many of which have been led by young people themselves and so are already equipped with that, that organizing. Uh, and I've often said it's like, we're yes, we're, we're at college, we're at university to study, but actually, we've also been studying how to organize. All this time we've been absorbing the lessons of what it means to amass collective power. And I think when you're talking about the statistics about the, the ages of the population, I think the number of people who are getting this essential, essential school in organizing is going to mean that the face of trade unions is going to look very different in the next you know, decade, that the face of organizing is going to look very different in the next decade because we are equipped with these skills, we know the power that it has to actually shift lots of conversations. Um, and I, yeah, I am excited. I'm very excited. And, you know, I'm, I'm 22 now, so I've got a few more years of calling myself a young person. Um, and once I'm not anymore, I want to sit back and amplify those voices of the people coming up after me. Like, I got into this game of organising when I was 15, 16. And do you know what? I'm ready to age out and just sit back and amplify. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to do it already. Because I can see some of the, even even younger than I was when I started, some of those people starting up and the fire that they have and how unapologetic they are in, in their demands and um, their vision for the world is so expansive and so liberatory and just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the world. And I can see it so clearly and I'm very, very excited for it. In your work nationally, I'm assuming that you come into contact with people that represent student bodies across the world. Do you see similar issues play out in different countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I take a lot of inspiration from the, the October 22nd movement from Uganda, which is where students have been railing against peace since 2019. And, and we see the same issues about marketization and how this failed project has impacted the integrity of education and um, so the, the, the issues we're dealing with are the same um, and of course depending on, on our context and our countries the, the tactics might be slightly different but, but the issues are fundamentally the same um, you know really similar for the, the fees must fall movement in South Africa following the roads must fall movement there um, and looking at those connections between the need to demarketize our universities with the need to decolonize our universities and of course those two things in many ways are inherently interlinked um, and I think that's a really interesting very poignant crossover that we've seen in the, in the South African student movement and that we can learn a lot from and of course we we, we take up our, our membership of the European Students Union so we work really closely with folks there and actually we're really lucky in that the former president uh, my, my predecessor here is now the vice president at the ESU European Students Union so we have really great links there and and continue to send our solidarity to students who, again, are fighting the same fights as us, just in different contexts and in different countries. Chapter 3, Decolonize. The legacy of the slave trade is a topic we've covered extensively on the show through interviews with Professors Vincent Brown and Richard Bell. Not only are we learning more and more about Britain's history of empire, we're also starting to see how that history influences modern day, whether we want to believe it or not. Student movements have highlighted how we still inadvertently celebrate slave traders by allowing their names to adorn our universities and civic institutions. 
We're learning how legacies don't have to last forever, how our understanding of the past should inform the actions of today, not govern them. Alongside the pandemic response, Larissa says the decolonized campaign is one of her biggest areas of focus. This is built on a long legacy of student activism that has been bringing this to the fore. And of course, that has permeated kind of public recognition in the past few years in a really tangible way. And I think now is a moment where students, it doesn't matter that there's a pandemic going on. Of course, that that influences the work. But nonetheless, we have to keep on the case of this because For years, people have been trying to bring this to the forefront of conversations. And I think there is a worry that those conversations are becoming diluted by universities that want to kind of tinker around the edges of this issue, but not really grasp at the root of kind of historical genocide, enslavement, displacement, colonialism, and so on. And so really seeing students empowered to to talk about those issues in it in a really grounded way that recognises those historical um, problems and, and the way that, that those manifest today. Like if we if we take the story of, of a student uh, called Zach at Manchester, who just a few months ago was harassed um, on his campus by security as a black student experiencing kind of security violence akin to police violence and brutality that we see in the wider world and how the the, the policing and securitization of who accesses these campuses or who accesses these spaces of education is so, it's a live issue today. And I don't think a lot of people recognize that because walking around my campus as a black student, I would have, you know, security asking me for my card, asking me to prove that I'm a student there where, you know, the the white students who just passed in front of me didn't get stopped, they didn't get asked. Uh, And so lots of these things, lots of these issues still manifest because we haven't actually excavated the problems uh, that are at the very core of our education system because they were built upon this, right? Like we see the history of eugenics at places like UCL. We see the the history of um, colonialism and and how that's uh, being tackled through the renamed Radcliffe campaign at Warwick. Of course, you know, this is this is something that goes on and on. The list would be endless if I if I mentioned all of these kind of colonial influences that are embedded into our education system. So, yes, to answer the question, students are um, still holding universities feet to the fire on this. Um, And I think this is about empowering the student community to really challenge not only the kind of physical manifestation, but also the, the kind of ways that racism is sown into the fabric of our universities in a a financial sense Uh, if we look at lots of the partnerships that disproportionately impact people in the global south from a um, institutional sense if we look at um, if you report racism who's going to deal with that are they a person of color do they understand what that means when you're reporting that can they recognize a microaggression and why that's impacted you and so there's so many elements to this that cannot be dealt with by adding a black name to a reading list, which I think is often the kind of tokenistic approach that that universities take. And so when we're talking about decolonizing and really uprooting these systemic issues, making sure that they're held to account in that and rather than than doing those kind of surface level level changes that really don't change the realities for students of colour. Tokenism is dangerous because it seeks to put a black face and a black in, in a white space without changing the space itself. 
and similarly within education there was a lot of focus on getting students of colour in right there was a lot of focus on access and you know okay we'll get people in the door and that will change everything we'll get people in the door and what actually people were doing was putting people in a space that was violent for them without addressing the violence and, and a lot of black and brown students speak to the trauma that they've experienced at their universities because of that and, and so it's, it's not only problematic because it, it's erasing the things that, that black and brown people have to say it's actually violent in some ways because now we have a lot of young students of colour who are experiencing very viscerally the issues with our education system on a day-to-day basis and so it's, it is dangerous and I, I think it I, I fundamentally think it's dangerous and beyond that I think it, it it only serves to reproduce the way things currently are, right? So I think a lot of, of universities like to put together these committees and, you know, say, okay, we're, we're setting aside time to talk about this. And in constantly talking about it and bureaucratising the issue, um, students come in and, you know, in their first year, they have all of this energy to talk about anti-racism and so on. Um, and then they get worn down by the university. And actually what they're doing is by exhausting these students, reproducing the same thing because those students get exhausted and, you know, they settle for some random, okay, we're going to put some money behind something that's going to, you know, in the the grand scheme of things, make very little difference to black students. And then the the cycle happens again because those students graduate and new students come in with all the energy, they get tired, they accept crumbs rather than asking for the whole cake and they graduate. And that is the kind of cyclical process that we're seeing in universities where the tokenism is not only problematic, it's violent because it's reproducing the same systems year upon year, cycle upon cycle. Uh, And I think students are exhausted. And that's why a lot of the focus now with the decolonial effort is about empowering student grassroots communities that are sustainable uh, and that don't rely on any one individual to sit on a committee or put themselves in a space that doesn't actually recognise the nature of what they're trying to achieve and is actually about amassing that collective power to get the university to do better. So yeah, I mean, I think students are very aware of it. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Larissa Kennedy for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? Adversity forges togetherness. This pandemic has led to the biggest wave of student activism in the past decade. Use adversity to create strong bonds or unlikely friendships between your characters. Tokenism is dangerous. Don't add characters from ethnic minorities into your story just because you think you need a non-white face give those characters the role they deserve. And finally, microaggressions are a form of racism that many white people don't even notice, but their impact is no less severe. Sometimes it's the issues that lie just beneath the surface that cause the most pain. We all need to ask questions more and to step into other people's shoes, not only so we can write more informed stories that avoid antiquated stereotypes, but also for the sake of self-improvement. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. <laughs> <laughs>